This is the MG Car Club podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this week's episode, I've been to a car show. Adam explains what MG is showing at the Beijing Motor Show. And we have the first part of our fascinating chat with founder of the Triple M Register and former employee of MG, Michael Allison. The MG Car Club podcast. Hello and welcome to another MG Car Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you here and over in Kimber House is Adam Sloman. Hi, Adam. Hello, Wayne. How you doing, mate? I'm very good, actually. Yes, I, I'm feeling very refreshed and invigorated. Oh, blimey. Well, that's, that's, that's good to hear, mate. I say that in all seriousness because, like many people, I've experienced a very strange year this year because, you know, the, so many of the events that I enjoy and that are sort of milestones through the year have been cancelled this year. But this weekend, Adam, I went to a car show. <gasps> no, you didn't. And I, I did, I did. I'll tell you what, it was nice to be back and almost, I mean, it was far from normal and I'll tell you why in just a moment, but it was nice to be just out and amongst cars and car fans and car club people, actually. And I attended Salon Privé, which is the big concourse event at Blenheim Palace. It's the UK version of Pebble Beach, basically. Yeah, they, they don't they don't let people like, like me into events like that, mate. <laughs> I'm I'm nowhere near classy enough for that sort of thing. Can you imagine me rocking up there in a maestro? It's not going to happen, is it? Well, I was very honoured actually because uh, there I was. I think it was because I put on a suit for the day, but I was very honoured to be asked to judge the Jaguars. But what I did notice was the lengths to which this event had had to go to make sure they were COVID safe. And it just goes to show what we've got ahead of us, really, to make sure that next year our events like MG Live can take place. I'm sure we can get round it. It was a great learning curve, actually. Very good event, um, very nice event, different from what we do in the MG Car Club. Um, But for me, it was nice to be out amongst cars, outdoors, in a field again, uh, just seeing nice cars and being amongst car people. Uh, it was like a little bit of therapy for me at the weekend, Adam. So I've got a question for you about the show then, mate. Mm. Having gone through all that and having to have, to have done all that, when you got there and you were wandering around um, looking at all this lovely shiny metal, two questions. Yeah. A, did you feel safe? And B... Did you just for the smallest time while you were there forget about the virus and what was going on? I mean, were were people in masks? What 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 did it look like? What did it feel like? It was ever present, the mm. virus, to be honest with you. And actually you realise what things you take for granted. Things like being able to get in and out of trade displays for example and because there hasn't been goodwood festival of speed which has kind of taken over the role in the british motor scene as the motor show now where manufacturers launch new cars um this had a lot of new car manufacturers stuff there bentley had a very impressive stand um, as did lotus with the first viewing of the brand new all-electric lotus uh, supercar which was a fascinating vehicle to look over actually uh, I did feel safe, but you do. It's like it's like the experience you have when you're going out to the local park or whatever. If you're taking your family out, 
you do always feel at the moment like you're doing this weird two meter wide dance around everyone yeah and definitely it, it, it does become a little irritating to be honest i find it quite irritating i just want to sort of focus on what i'm doing but you've got to have this peripheral vision around you at all times as to how close you're getting to the person next to you don't you yeah but we're all having to deal with that at all times and it's the same whether i was at salon Prive or whether i'm down the park to be honest so yeah irritating as it is it's through every bit of life at the moment but um no fair play to the organizers andrew and david bagley of salon Privé for managing to put that on i thought that was very brave um fair play to oxfordshire council for allowing them to do it and for the blenheim palace authorities to let them do it as well but um yeah it did bring bring it home actually yeah yeah there is another event happening on the other side of the planet at the moment and I have no idea about the social distancing going on with this event, but it is quite significant in that MG, the manufacturer, are there. Um, quite ironic, really, that it happens in China, where all of this nightmare began. Seemingly, they don't have to be suffering with it at the moment, <laughs> because it is the Beijing Motor Show, isn't it, Adam? And MG have got an impressive lineup with three of their brand new models on, on display. Yes, so like we were saying, um, the virus situation seems to have sort of largely calmed down in China. Um, so they've been able to go ahead and, and hold. Um, it is socially distanced. Um, there are a lot of people in, in masks, um, which seems to be a cultural thing uh, in, in Asian society anyway, if you're feeling unwell, to sort of pop on a mask. Um, but, um, but yeah, we've seen the launch of the new MG5, um, the launch of the sort of refreshed, heavily refreshed MGHS, um, and it's joined by the recently launched Mark III MG6, so a trio of, of new MGs, um, all with this sort of latest take on the MG family front. Um, but the car that stood out for me and really grabbed my attention is this new MG5, which I think is just a superb-looking bit of kit. Mm, it really is, and the motor show car is yellow, which makes it, and it's on like a dark background as well, which makes it really stand out. And I have to express some disappointment that that's not the MG5 that we're getting here in the UK because that is a really nice-looking car. It's got like a kind of sporty coupe rear profile on it, and it's got some beautiful sort of air-defined aerodynamic lines that are sort of swage lines down the side of the car there and the front of it looks quite aggressive and sporty but that's not the car we're getting here in the uk is it so this is um a different uh, different car to our mg5 this is a more conventional petrol engine car with a 1.5 turbo that you would find in the hs and formerly in the gs so that's the general motors um derived 1.5 turbo so you're looking at about 170 brake horsepower um nice. so you know decent bit of power um mm. it is a smaller saloon if you think about the sort of audi a3 saloon um mm. that we we get over here it's that sort of size um I would love one. I think it would be um, right at the top of my consideration list. Um, I've always looked at hatchbacks before, um, but um, but yeah, I would certainly consider something like that MG5. Beautiful. Yeah, a really, really stunning-looking car, actually, and perhaps in time we can persuade them to roll that out to the UK because I think that would be a really good seller. And, you know, it's a car you could do a lot with. You could brand that 
to appeal to a youth market you could make that customizable it could almost be mg's kind of ds3 slightly larger okay but you know what i mean it's got that kind of sporty younger customizable body kitable vibe about it to me definitely i mean one of my neighbors at home has got um he had a, a mercedes a-class um and then he chopped that in for a um an audi a3 and he's got this beautiful like neon blue audi a3 saloon um and he's only a young lad um and everyone is sort of that generation seems to buy their cars on on contract um like a big mobile phone um so if you could offer someone you know that sort of um package but with lower monthly payments because it would be an mg rather than an audi um with that level of customization and you know decent performance and let's face it some really head-turning looks i think mg would be onto a winner with that Definitely, and you'd end up with a supply of cars into the second-hand car market that, because they had a conventional petrol engine, would be easily obtainable and maintainable as a enthusiast's car, and also um, something that would have a bit of a following, a cult brand around it as well, which I think probably MG a little bit missing at the minute. They're going for volume, and you know ultimately they've got to get cars shifted out the door because they're a relatively new business still and they're still making those big growth spurts that are required to be more experimental shall we say with their models in the future but that car would instantly give them i think a kind of cultural following you know a little bit like the citroen ds's have given them um yeah, there's. A, I think there would be some real potential in that car because you you make a good point there actually when you talk about these subscription deals, if you like, for buying cars. This is one of the biggest threats I think we have as the MG Car Club is that people don't buy cars at the moment, do they? Very few people walk into a showroom now and buy a car that they will ultimately own. It's all done on finance deals, lease agreements. You have a car for three, four years, and then you hand it back and you get the next one. And there's very little brand loyalty. And on the one hand, manufacturers have got to adapt themselves to this lack of brand loyalty. How do they cope with that, making new cars? And also, how do we as a car club offer something for people who actually don't own these cars? So why would they invest enthusiasm in them? There's a big changing world out there in the automotive market, isn't there? Definitely. I mean, this just going back to this this MG5, if you look at a brand which is arguably a little bit similar to MG, if you look at someone like Seat, mm. um, you know, you can go and buy, um, you know, something like a, a Leon uh, and buy the very base model, you know, the most economical one you can buy. Or you can go and buy Cupra. You know, you can buy an FR. You can buy the the crazy, sporty, high-performance model. Um, they all share that same DNA. So while something like the MG5 EV or, you know, the HS or, or the ZS EV can really bring that volume into MG as a, as a manufacturer, if there's lots of volume there, then hopefully that might give us a bit of wiggle room for a few niche products. MG Motor Australia have been talking about, in quotes, a Toyota Corolla rival for their market. Um, mm. And this MG5 would seem to sit squarely in that bracket. So, you know, if another right-hand drive market, like we always say, if another right-hand drive market like Australia or India or Thailand take this car then hopefully there might be a little slice of the pie for us here in the UK. 
Absolutely. Come on, MG. We want your lovely MG5 here in the UK. Come on. I know you're listening. <laughs> Me and Adam are going to buy one. We're in the queue down the dealership already. We, we want one. I like it. Very good. Well, back to the UK, Adam. And on the theme of new MGs and new MG models, we have an announcement about the MG Social, which is taking place 10th of October. It's a Saturday event held at the British Motor Museum at Gaydon for our 90th anniversary. Hooray! Finally an event. Um, but uh, we're going to see three of the new MG models there. They're going to bring them along for us, aren't they? Yes, so we've been talking to our friends at MG Motor, um, and you know, with it being the sort of celebration of the club's 90th, we wanted to, as much as possible, reflect the entire history of the club. Um, so, what better than to have sort of a couple of examples of MG's current range? So, yeah, the the guys from MG Motor have been kind enough to confirm that they will be coming along to the day with um, the MG5 EV. Um, the MG HS Hybrid and the ZS EV. So if you've not been able to get down to a dealer or perhaps you just haven't had a chance to, to, to check out one of the new cars yet, um, those two brand new cars that were launched last week, um, the, the Hybrid HS and the 5 EV, as well as the uh, very popular and very well selling ZS EV, will uh, all be on MG Motors stand at uh, our uh, social on the 10th. Well, it's going to be really nice to be in amongst MGs at the MG Social at the British Motor Museum, 10th of October. And uh, for those of you that receive our email newsletter, um, we did write a little story on there last week uh, that it was still going ahead. That remains the case this week. And book with confidence, basically. You can find the links via mgcc.co.uk. If for whatever reason it doesn't take place, you will, of course, get a full refund. But we are very, very confident, Adam, because of the infrastructure that the British Motor Museum have in place, that this event can take place. Not only that it can take place, but it will be safe to take place and safe for you to attend. It's very informal, very simple. Just come along, wander around the cars, remain socially distanced, come with your pod or your bubble or your household or whatever you want to call <laughs> the people you can mix with, and we're going to make it a really just nice day out for you to just get out be amongst MGs, look at cars, be in the atmosphere, and at least do something in person to celebrate nine decades of the MG Car Club. If you want to book, very easy, mgcc.co.uk. You can find the links on there, or you can go to the British Motor Museum at Gaydon's website as well. Click on their events tab, and you can buy tickets straight from them. They're the guys handling the ticket sales. It's all done through them, and uh, we'd love to see you there uh, to come and join us for a nice day out in October to celebrate that momentous anniversary of the MG Car Club. I'm looking forward to it, Adam. Like we were saying, it's been a hell of a year um for all the wrong reasons um so to have an opportunity to to run a properly safe event um and just be able to say hello to people from a distance um will be really really nice and we're, we're looking forward to it so yeah it's it's important to remember it is a covid safe uh, venue that's the entire reason for us holding it at gaden um and we hope that we can see lots of you there on the 10th Brilliant. And I had another nice experience over the weekend, Adam. Uh, I went and saw some beautiful MGs in an unexpected place. And sometimes this happens. You don't really plan to go somewhere. <laughs> you just kind of go out for a... I went for a drive in the Cotswolds. It was very nice because I was staying down there for um, 
Salon Privé at Blenheim on the Saturday. I thought I'll make use of the car and I'll go for a waft through the Cotswolds. And I ended up at Borton on the Water. And by pure chance, as walking through this beautiful uh, Cotswold town, I came across a motor museum. Now, if anyone gets a chance to go to Borton on the Water and pop into their little motor museum, it's right in the middle of town by the river. It's a little gem. It's a fantastic little find, and there's all sorts of different cars in there, and it's one of those kind of old-school museums where you kind of feel like you're poking through someone's shed, <laughs> you know? There's sort of everything in there just crammed in, you know? You kind of feel like you're through this journey of someone's personal collection, and there's a real charm in that, actually. And um, there are three stunning MGs in there. They have a really, really lovely-looking mgy type saloon um in green and um it's been quite nicely preserved actually this car um i i, I was climbing all over it to be honest it was a real beauty uh, they've got a lovely mgtd in there in navy blue with a red grill nice and just when you think you've seen it all you sort of come towards the exit of this little museum that you've been wandering around and there by the door as you leave is an MG J2, and not only is there a lovely J2 there in red, but it's a J2 with an MG Car Club enamel badge on it as Ooh. well. So I was very impressed with that. Um, and they've got lots of educational sort of script and boards and stuff around the cars, so uh, a great opportunity to learn more about the older MGs uh, that the brand represented, and also to find out a few little gems as well. And what I love about these little museums, and I'm going to go off onto a tangent now that is not MG-related whatsoever, but I know that MG fans are into all sorts of different things, as am I. I discovered a story of a vehicle that I'd never seen before, and it was the Rover 8 van. And this van was a 1922 model, and they were made in vast quantities. And it had some really interesting features. First of all, they made it really cheaply, and in order to cut the costs of the bare bones, they'd only given it a passenger door. There's no driver's <laughs> door, just a passenger one. Uh, why not the driver's door? Well, because they want you to exit onto the pavement for safety. Okay, so that was the first thing they managed to sell, and they were just 180 pounds. These vans in 1923, they managed to sell 17,700 of them. At their peak, they were making 140 a week of these little Rover 8 vans, and when you look at them, they look quite conventional because, of course. They were trying to mimic the look of other vehicles on the road whilst also remaining very cheap. And it has a fake radiator, a big radiator grill at the front, which is a fake radiator because they're not water-cooled, they're air-cooled. And there's these two big rams and scoops on the front of the engine compartment that are supposed to ram air in. And there's not a lot of air ramming going on because this poor <laughs> thing is only flat out at about 30 mile an hour. So it was famous, apparently, for the cylinder heads the whole cylinder head for glowing bright red when the, the van was in use. Wow. And, um, yeah, fantastic little thing. And it also has solid metal disc wheels because they found that the wooden spoked wheels were collapsing under load over, like, cobbled <laughs> streets of the 1920s, <laughs> loaded up with OXO cubes. You know. um, they, were, they were having problems with them, so it had solid disc wheels. Um, 
a really charming little thing and uh, a little find that you can find in these museums that are scattered up and down the country, these little collections. And I mention it for two reasons. Firstly, obviously, great to see the J2 in there with the MG Car Club badge on it and great to see that little collection of MGs. And I'll always mention and get excited about MGs that I find out in the world. But also, I know, and you could see from talking to the volunteers that were at the museum over the weekend museums are really struggling not just motor museums museums up and down the country as covid hits them hard they're being forced to limit the number of people in the museum at any one time which makes people need to wait to get in or to pre-book which puts people off visiting and they are having it tough museums struggle at the best of times through donations and the goodwill of the public to keep them going and this pandemic has really hit them hard so what i realized while i was there adam was that we really need to support these little small motor museums because this pandemic could well threaten their existence you know just buy a ticket and go and have a look round. basically that's all they want from you is just to visit them and be there there's not a lot they're not asking for big donations i'm sure they wouldn't say no but what they want is just people to go and make the effort of visiting them and paying the admission fee on the door to keep these places afloat because ultimately like those three mgs i found in that Borton on the water museum they are preserving some fantastic artifacts from motoring history and we need to make sure they're supported so i i got a bit sort of uh enthusiastic should i say about helping those little museums through this really really tough time yeah no i totally agree with that mate because you know the thing is once these places are gone they're gone forever um as i say the cars always find homes but it's all the other stuff the paraphernalia that lines the walls you know all that other stuff that's really interesting but of fairly low value money wise but lots of value in terms of the story and the narrative it offers on society and the motor car's place in society through the years, our heritage. Little things like old petrol pumps. There was an old Red X um, container there from the early 1950s. Stuff like that that really it's not it doesn't have a lot of, e of financial value, but it's fascinating to actually see and touch and understand, you know. Um, actually, there was a, a fourth MG that I forgot to mention. There was a little MG 1100 in there as well um, that was dressed up to be a rally car. Nice. Um, covered in mud, and there was a video showing on the windscreen of this car um, explaining what trialling was all about. Um, and uh, the sign, I remember the sign above it. You have to go and see it and see it. The MG 1100 there, it's a 1964 car. The sign above it said, uh, Why is this car all muddy? And uh, it goes on to explain that uh, this car was the sporty version of the Austin Morris 1100. And the MG 1100 was raced by well-known drivers in some famous events, including the Monte Carlo Rally. By the mid-1960s, those standard family cars like this were ousted by more specialised and expensive cars, such as the Mini Cooper and Porsche 911. Well done for recognising the sporting history of the MG 1100 from 1964. So, yeah, that was the fourth MG in the uh, in the collection there at uh, the Borton and the Water Museum. So, uh, yeah, do support them. Find your local museum. Go along. Pay the fee. Make sure they keep all of our heritage safe and secure for us all to enjoy. 
You know, when you were uh, talking about uh, the the other items in the museum there, I thought you were going to use our, our word of the week from last week, but you said paraphernalia rather than garaphernalia. Mate, uh, I'm yeah. gutted. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, well, I didn't know whether you had copyright on that, mate. To be honest, I didn't. Know I'll allow, if I had to I'll pay allow a fee any to use it. anyone in the MG Car Club uh, to use the word free of charge. Thank you. That's good. That's that's your <laughs> your charitable donation to the world through difficult times. Excellent. Well, um, from garaphernalia and paraphernalia <laughs> to MG Car Club banalia, that doesn't really work. I'll leave the word invention to you, Adam. But Thanks. you have something from the Kimberhouse archives, and I believe this is something from the year of my birth. It's an issue of Safety Fast. Yes, so this is uh, a copy of Safety Fast from uh, September 1984. Um, so this is a guide to replacing a piston. Excellent. I'm taking notes. Okay, you ready? So yep. you will need, and if you're if you're playing the home game and following along, um, this is what you'll need. You will need a hammer, right? A, a bent screwdriver. Okay. Another hammer. <laughs> right, right. A Payne's workshop manual. Everyone needs a Haynes workshop manual. No, no, a Payne's workshop manual. Oh, Payne's. Yep. Uh, a sledgehammer. One dozen tins of light ale. A piece of, of string, a band-aid, and a lump hammer. Speckled hen, I'm assuming that light ale will be. I should hope so. Mm. So, step one. Take the Payne's manual and open it at page 11. Excellent. Is this the page where it says tap lightly with a hammer? <laughs> when usually it needs a 20-ton press. Remove the successive 20 to 25 pages and spread them on the floor under your car. So as you may lie under said vehicle without dirtying your clothes. <laughs> Step two, hold the bent screwdriver lightly but firmly and lift the bonnet of your car. You will find the job infinitely more easy, however, if you completely remove the bonnet. For this operation, see the beginner's section on page one, how to use a chisel. Assuming the bonnet is removed, the next job is to remove the upper section of the engine. Standing astride the engine bay with one foot on each wing, swing the aforementioned sledgehammer in a pendulum-like motion, striking the top section of the rectangular-shaped black thing on top of the engine. With the rocker cover now removed, place a lever under the camshaft and with the other end resting on the offside wing, jerk violently upwards with some perseverance until the engine block should eventually come away. To save marking the wing, a piece of cloth or paper may be placed between the lever and the wing. <laughs> With the piston now revealed, the damaged piston may be removed. Here, you will need some help. Get someone to hold the conrod while you drift the gudgeon pin out using the screwdriver and or hammer. <laughs> Precision engineering this, I can tell. <laughs> Any broken fragments of piston, which may fall into the crankcase, may be disregarded. With the new or reconditioned piston in place, the engine may now be reassembled. Wiping all sealing edges to remove any traces of gasket, bone splinters, etc. Sort of make a sandwich of the engine block using the crankcase and head. While someone is holding the assembly of engine, block and head together, take a strong piece of nylon string and wind around the said assembly several times. In fact, the more the merrier. Then, with the aid of another person's forefinger, Tie a nice strong knot. To help you here, you may need to read my previous publication, 
not for the modern mechanic. Well, there you are. We've done it. Provided you followed these instructions carefully, you will have many miles of trouble-free downhill motoring. Next month, we'll be moving on to the nitty-gritty stuff, emptying the ashtrays. Best wishes, Kevin Sanders. Well, brilliant, Kevin. And uh, I'm sure when that was written in the early 1980s, there was many a garage up and down the land that was actually using that genuine technique for removing pistons. <laughs> <laughs> they were the garage that charged you a tenner, mate. We'll sort it, mate. Don't you worry about that. But I'd, I'd recommend you sell the car afterwards. <laughs> All of them jobs. Brilliant. Good sense of humour in 1984. That was splendid. You like that? The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centers and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Well, this week on the MG Car Club podcast, we're talking to someone who has quite literally spent a lifetime around our favourite brand of car. Uh, I'm talking to Michael Allison. Uh, Michael, you've had a complete lifetime with MG, so uh, let's start at the very beginning. Take us back to your very first experience of the MG brand and MG cars. Where did it all begin for you? Okay, well, really it began when I was about four or five years old. A neighbour... Um, at the time, my fam- uh, my home was in Bexley Heath in Kent, and uh, a neighbour had uh, an MG in his garage. Or, and uh, I used to go down there on my little tricycle and try and ogle it whenever the garage was open. And one day the lady came out and said, um, I see you're looking at my husband's car. He's away at present. Of course, the war was on. Um, he's away at present, but when he comes home... Um, I'll get him to take you out for a ride in it. So I said, uh, you know, what sort of car is it? And she said, oh, I don't know. It's an MG. And uh, she let me sit in it, which was very nice of her. Anyway, when the war was over, I I saw him push the car out one day and he was starting to work on it. And um, he said, oh, I believe my wife has spoken to you. By this time, I'm, what, nearly 10 so I said, yes, yeah, she, she did say that if I asked nicely, you would take me for a ride. Well, when he got the thing running properly, he did take me for a little ride. And that was the car for me. It was a, either a P or a J. I don't know which. But it made a lovely rasping noise from the exhaust. And it seemed to go very fast to me. Um, my dad at the time had just come home himself and he had a Morris 8 Series E. Yeah, he'd ordered a new car, and I said, oh, will it be an MG? He said, no, it won't be another one of these. But by the time he got it, about four years later, it was actually a Morris Minor Series MM, which I was a bit disappointed in, but it was quite a nice little car, but it had the same mechanicals as the Series E. As I got a little bit older, I started to read about MGs. I I discovered John Thornley's book, uh, Maintaining the Breed, and... um, oh, yeah, you know, this is what I want, one of these. And, um, you know, I, I said uh, to my dad, will you, uh, will you finance me? And he said, no, I bloody well won't. <laughs> but what I will do for you is that if you save some money, 
I'll put an equal amount to it. And on your 21st birthday, you can have an MG. Uh, 21 used to be the ruling age uh, when you could get insurance for sports cars. And, um, well, I was 21 in 1957. And um, he duly, uh, he said, how much money have you got? And I counted it. And I had something like 100 pounds. So he said, okay, um, I'll put another 100 to it. and We'll see what we can buy for that. We went out and bought a P-Type, which was my first MG, GG9126, which I believe is somewhere in Italy now. But anyway, uh, I had that car for, oh, thick end of two years. It was a bit of a bird puller, which, uh, of course, at that age I enjoyed. How were MGs looked upon in that sort of immediate post-war period? Were they seen as a sort of sexy, aspirational sports car? or Yes, quite definitely. Um, a, a lot of my friends wanted an MG, but they ended up with, uh, shall we say, lesser cars, <laughs> usually saloon cars. Uh, saloon cars were very cheap. MGs were relatively expensive. Um, but there was a, a fund of knowledge. Uh, by this time, um, the family had moved out to uh, Ryslip in Middlesex. My dad was a greengrocer, and he bought a shop there. And um, oh, I associated with a number of other uh, young people, and um, I was the lucky one with the MG, and everyone wanted to ride in it, which I was always happy to do. Anyway, the, the next one down the line, I, I traded that in against an 1880, which I kept for about a year. But then um, I met uh, Anne, who is still my wife, um, and uh, we decided to get married. And an 1880 doing about 18 to the gallon was not the sort of motor car I could afford to run. So uh, I traded that in against an F-Type. Um, by this time, I was working for the Atomic Energy Authority. I, uh, I had a degree in chemistry, um, or have a degree in chemistry, indeed. They can't take it away from me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was, I was working at a, as a chemist in the um, isotope production unit, which used to be at Amersham. We had a car club there, and I very quickly became a, an active member of it. The Atomic Energy Authority, God bless them, um, used to encourage people of the age I was then, about, you know, uh, early to mid-twenties, um, to uh, take further education. And I went to Slough College and took a mechanical engineering course because by this time I knew that mechanical engineering was really where I wanted to be. And I duly got a diploma in mechanical engineering and um, I, I remember when I went back to my boss and told him that I got this, he said, I thought you were going for chemical engineering. So I said, no, I'm, I'm already a chemist. I don't need that. What I wanted to know was how to screw things together properly. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Well, that's where, I guess that's where the, the hobby started to turn into a career for you. But it was in the late 1950s that you also came across the MG Car Club, wasn't it? I joined in 1959. Um with, with my F-Type Magna. I can't remember the exact month. It'll be on the MG Car Club record somewhere, but uh, it was around about September, August, September time, late summer that I eventually became a member. And um, I immediately applied to the office to get all the back numbers of Safety Fast, which only ran back to April that year. <laughs> um, 
And that was my first contact with Wilson McCoon. But then the Austin Healy Sprite was announced in 1960. That was when Safety Files became the magazine of the Austin Healy Motor Company as well, because they were made in the same place. I, I wrote a cheeky little note to uh, the editor of Safety Files, Wilson McCoon. He um, made a comparison between the Austin Healy Sprite and the PBMG. And this would be during 19, early 61, I think. And uh, he said the car was in every way better. And I said, after 25 years, I'd expect some improvement in motor cars. Always <laughs> um, that effect. I have, in fact, started to write up for the Triple M yearbook, the history of the Triple M, because we're 60 years old uh, next year. So I thought it was a good time to, uh, to write up the history. And um, I've still got all, all the letters. Uh, when, uh, when Wilson left the company, he very kindly donated me all the early historical documents that he had. I haven't bothered to keep anything because history of a register, we're only two or three years old. I, as I say, I'm writing all this up at present for the, for the yearbook, my contribution for next year. Fantastic. Well, for those listening who perhaps aren't as familiar with the, the MG world and perhaps joining us for the first time, let's explain what we mean by Triple M. Basically, the name derives itself from the overhead cammed engined uh, early MGs, the MG Midget, the Magna and the Magnet. Uh, they were cars built between 1929 and 1936. That's what, when we're talking about Triple M, we mean, of course. And this was the beginnings of really the MG Car Club in the late 1950s, early 1960s, starting to protect and to preserve those pre-war cars, wasn't it? And to keep them on the road. So how how did that, that register grow in those early years? And how did it uh, develop into what we see now as a, a huge community within the MG family? Before um, the Triple M register, there was a thing called the Quindecimal register, which was for MG cars more than 15 years old. Well, it's such a disparate... Um, collection of motor cars, you know, they're all different his historically and mechanically um, from the 1440 side valve right the way through to the uh, T-type midgets, which were still quite common in the 50s. Um, they were still being produced. Then the MGA came along. The Quindecimal sort of was moribund when I joined the club. The vintage register started in 1959, and they wouldn't have the overhead cam MGs. And arising from my um, contact with Wilson McCoon, um, we had a slightly abrasive uh, reaction from him. Eventually, I said, what we really want is a register for the overhead cam cars. And he said, well, if you want it, do it and put me on to Russell Lowry, who was at that time the, the general secretary. Um, we call them something much grander these days, but the general secretary was the head man of the club. Russell lived up in Cheshire somewhere. Russell was a, a nice bloke. He was a, a really charming man. He wrote wonderful letters. And um, he wrote to me and said, uh, I understand you're agitating for an overhead cam register. How many cars do you think you'll get? So I said, well, you know, there are probably 50 or 100 around, and we'd just like them all to come together sometimes. So he said, fine. Well, uh, what I suggest you do is meet up with Gordon Cobham, who is secretary of the 
local register to me, southeast, and um, these people, and he named uh, four others, Mike Hawke, Mel Jones, Mike Harris, and Irving Bramson, who had all um, caused a little bit of a ruffle in his post box recently, and um, suggest you four get together, you all live in the London area, and um, see what you can do. So I sent a letter round to all these people. My court by this time had moved down to Bath, and he said, well, it's not really practical for me to get up to London for a meeting, but I wish you well, and, you know, we'll see what, uh, what happens. And uh, we had a couple of meetings at the end of 61, and officially launched the register in November 61. It really wasn't until May the following year when we got a notice in motorsport to say that this register had started. We got up to about 45 or 50 uh, cars by then, and motorsport put this notice in, and all of a sudden we had 200 nod. Motorsport has, has a much bigger circulation than any of the car club uh, magazines. Well, of course, Motorsport Magazine at that time was the only real magazine for those car enthusiasts, wasn't it? There were other magazines where you could go and look at classifieds of cars for sale, but unlike now where there's literally hundreds of magazines on the shelves, back then, Motorsport was the one, wasn't it? Motorsport was the one, along with Exchange and Mart. <laughs> My job had increased at the Atomic Energy Authority, and I went for a promotion board and was uh, told that... Uh, Subsequently, I got, I got the letter to say, uh, you qualified for the upgrade and, you know, you, uh, you should be able to get a position. But the position they offered me was at Dude Ray. And I thought, oh, God, oh, well, I've got a, a name with Scottish pretensions. I am a blooming cockney. I'm not, I'm not going up to the north of Scotland. I started to uh, go for interviews for other jobs as a chemist with engineering experience. And um, John Thornley, uh, whom I knew by this time, he uh, was general manager at MGs. He rang me up and he said, uh, <laughs> he rang me up on my work phone <laughs> and said, um, would you uh, like to come and talk to me? So I said, yeah, okay. I said, uh, what about, what have I done wrong? He said, oh, don't worry about it. Just come and we'll have a, an informal chat. And he had me in the office um, in the famous uh, administration building. And uh, he said, take it easy. You've, you've not got to do anything. I want you to tell me about yourself. So rather, rather like I'm doing now. So he said, um, would you like to come and work at MGs? And I said, doing what? <laughs> so he said, well, supposing I tell you I can't answer that question right now, how would you react? So I said, well, I, I need to know a little bit more because I have got a, a family to consider. I've got a wife and a little boy. I also have the blessing of um, a house which uh, is supplied by the Atomic Energy Authority at a very low rent. So I said there'd have to be a bit of an improvement in my salary. So he said, oh, okay. He said, what do you know about exhaust emissions. So I said, well, mainly carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide and hydrocarbons. But I said, uh, I don't know much more about it. I said, you know, obviously we did that sort of thing at college. I said, but really nobody knows exactly what's in there. So uh, he said, uh, hmm, 
Well, you know a lot more than than I do about it. <laughs> I'll send you a letter and see see how you react to that. So he wrote to me and said that he'd like to offer me a job. I would have a temporary position in the safety files office working for Wilson McCoom while they decided when they could tell me what my proper job would be in due course. And um, I decided that, well, that's got to be of interest, so I'll have a crack at it. So I went. Um, on my first uh, day at MG, he said, uh, we think we're going to be in a position to offer you something in a year. So you're working for Wilson for a year. So I said, yes, okay. Then have you told Wilson that I'm only here on a limited thing? So he said, oh, yes, but he hadn't. <laughs> Wilson understands. Okay, fine. Well, eventually I, I got the call and was told to report to uh, Reg Jackson, whom I'd exchanged letters with previously. I walked into Reg's office and he's, I became very friendly with him over the years because he was a nice man. Of course, he tuned all the Triple M cars. And uh, his opening bluff was, I believe you like these old overhead camshaft MGs. So I said, yes, I do. I've got one. So he said, good. I don't want to hear anything else spoken about them. We're here to make MGBs and midgets and perhaps other things. Who knows? Just shut up about the car club. That takes secondary interest to anything you do here. You're here to improve the improve our motor cars. So I said, yes, okay. Then what exactly am I doing? He said, right, I'm going to send you off to Longbridge. And he said, you've got to find out as much as you can about exhaust emissions. Well, a bit of an open uh, open thing, but I said, yes, okay, then if that's what I've got to do, that's what I'm doing. And I went off up to Longbridge, met people up there, and I found that there was a lot of research going on. And I said, what's behind all this? So, oh, you haven't been told yet then. So I said, no, he's, uh, this is a chap called Howard Dancox, who was the boss of the thing. Um, he said, well, what we do here is we're researching um, exhaust emissions, looking to lower them on cars that are going to America. You work for MGs, and they're at the forefront of all this. So I said, oh, okay. He recommended a course I went. Uh, I should go on at um, Borough Tech in London. And apart from that, I just had to pick it up as I went along. I found out about exhaust emission testing, how the laws were sent to us and all this sort of thing. I became friendly with uh, people in the MG design, um, particularly Terry Mitchell and Roy Brocklehurst, who were the mechanical wizards of the time. Uh, Roy was being groomed to be uh, Sid Enver's uh, successor by then. We're talking about, what, 1965, 64? Yeah, early 65, and I would also be responsible for building a test facility for production cars, and they would give me some sort of help in um, in doing all that. So I said, okay, that's fine. And really, it sort of snowballed from there. I became the BMC man uh, who, on production who became something of a, an expert on exhaust emissions. 
Well, because this was really important for them at the time. The big market was America, and new legislation, especially in California and other Western states, was really starting to change the way that they had to export cars there. And you certainly saw some of the other British manufacturers sending cars over to that market with highly detuned engines, lower compression engines. So, so what did MG? What did you have to work on with MG, and how did those American market cars? differ and how did you end up at that conclusion that that was what you had to do um it was down to the longbridge people to come up with a solution uh because they were they were proper engineers unlike me who was you know an engineer by default really <laughs> so they came up with a system which involved an air pump which pumped air into the exhaust manifold and burned up the excess uh, hydrocarbons that was there and also destroyed the carbon monoxide um, we only had to, uh, in the very early days, we only had to comply with carbon monoxide emissions and hydrocarbon emissions. So, you know, blow, blowing air through hot exhaust uh, burned all this up and uh, we ended up with fairly clean exhaust by the standards of the day. Because we were pumping air into the exhaust pipe, we had to have a, a way of cutting this off. There, there were several little control devices which... Um, Oh, yeah, we had to have a backfire device so that it didn't um, go off like a bomb through the carburetors. Um, we had to have uh, carburetors which had controlled emissions and they had limited um, adjustments, which frustrated the road test drivers of the day because they were used to going up the road and getting slightly richer mixture to get a bit more performance. They weren't allowed to do this anymore. <laughs> but uh, the Nevertheless, certainly in, uh, we started in the 67 to sell cars to America. That was the 67 model year. So it would have started late 66. Um, and the performance wasn't greatly different from uh, the British uh, cars, the, the unmodified ones. But gradually more of the um, strictures became uh, stronger and stronger. And we did end up with a single carburetor MGB with very low emissions and not very good performance. But that was really after I uh, left MG. I was by this time working. I, I got transferred to uh, British Leyland Group Services, they called it. Emissions remained the highlight of my life. And safety regulations, I, I used to have to advise production people about certain safety tests that had to be done just about the time I left. British Leyland airbags were coming in, something which I filled me with horror because, okay, they, they may save the occasional life, but they're a bloody nuisance. <laughs> I have an MG3 at present, and I've got uh, that has uh, four uh, airbags which can deploy around the driver and passenger. And um, I try not to have accidents these days where I, I rolled an MGB, but I got shoved off the road by a truck. And, I felt it was better to go off-road than it was to hit him head-on. And the MGB obviously did well at protecting you because you're still here to tell us about it. I say openly to the this day that the seatbelt, it was that saved me because it just kept me strapped in the seat while the car went in end over end. Why it went end over end was that there was no grass verge. It just dropped seven feet. Well, fascinating to hear about the the sort of health and safety and quality 
uh, assurance, if you like, of uh, your work at um, BL and MG in those days. You've you've then had a an insight into how those cars were being built. Tell us about some of the problems that you saw within MG during that period. Tell us your thoughts on what they were doing wrong and actually perhaps what they were actually doing right because we're really good at giving the British car industry a good knocking, aren't we? But sometimes they really did do things quite well. We did have a very good quality assurance uh, scheme within BMC, certainly. Uh, and that went on through BMH. Um, when we became British Leyland, there was a tendency for Triumph and Rover people to think they were better than us, but they weren't really. Um, we did exactly the same tests as they did um, because they were mandatory, certainly for America, and later on, towards the end of my time, uh, Sweden, um, Japan, all countries were beginning to jump onto the bandwagon and want a car that was would have an accident safely. I, I, I've always maintained that the best safety factor in any car is the nut holding the steering wheel because he's, it is he who is responsible for just about any accident that happens. We were really working up to the, the standards of the day. You must have seen the, the, the a culture change within the company as it transitioned between BMC into BL. What were the main things that you as, a, as an employee kind of felt as that change was taking place? Yes, it was my, my misfortune to get transferred to this group service thing. And we were supposed to... Um, I was within quality all the time. And it was... Um, within my say that we should adopt various um, practices which hadn't been practiced anywhere else uh, within the corporation. And one of these was measurement standards, thread standards, um, and safety standards in general. And British Leyland consisted of 103 plants, each of whom thought they were independent. We decided on having a... a company test facility where everything was done um, and that was going to be at Gaydon and I was on the very early committees which uh, which started to define what was needed we were going to have a test track we were going to have a just about everything you can think of you know proper test laboratories but then Rover decided they wanted their own and then Triumph decided they wanted their own and I was dead against this, you know. No, we can only have one, and we'll all use it. Oh, well, we've got tests that go on for, for ages. No, they don't. You know, be, be reasonable. The company's only got so much money. In fact, we didn't have very much at all. This is based on my observation. I was told by one of the finance people that the, the thing that really made British Leyland come together was a tax that was introduced by the Labour government at the time called corporation tax, which was not brought in on future loads, but on all production past. Now, hey, we, had, we didn't have the finance for that, nor did any other um, company within British Leyland. You can't pay back taxes when you haven't allowed for it in your pricing structure. Now, even I can understand that, and I'm not really much of a financial wizard, 
they dropped an, uh, the government of the time dropped an awful ghoulie then and then their their um, solution to the problem was well in that case we'll nationalize the company and this was done by the uh, archpriest of uh, nationalization i prefer to call him lord stanscape because that's what he was but tony ben they called him he didn't even realize that in order to nationalize a company the company needed money to keep it going and the only money that the government could supply us was from tax. That's ridiculous. You've got tax paying to pay tax. Really, that explanation came to me from one of the chief financial people within British Leyland. And um, he's long since dead, so he won't mind me saying it. I, I guess uh, the company culture at the time as well didn't help in that you tried to bring together all of these different brands where you know journalists can say what they like about uh, workers going on strike and all the rest of it but fundamentally each worker for each brand was fiercely proud of the cars they were building and the brand they were working for oh, all absolutely. of a sudden yeah, you forced I mean, them together haven't you red jackson and um sid Enver, who were two of the real old guards and a lot of their contemporaries who were still at mg when i first went um they were all fiercely proud of the mg octagon and what it represented. And I, I have to say that I am to this day, MG did their best to make the best they could within the price that they were selling the car. You know, Reg Jackson, um, he, he, we did talk about the old days eventually when I got to know him better. And uh, I said, what's the best MG in your view that was ever made? And he said, come with me. So we went down to the production line, right up to the end of one of the production lines. And he said, that's the best one today. Just driving off the line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've never made a better car than that. And he tried to maintain that. And I know Sid Enver did too. They were both both self-taught men, really. Sid, Sid was lucky in that uh, he studied engineering a little bit more seriously, but he never went to college. I do know that. Um, but he was taught by one of the greatest engineers of the day, a bloke called Charles, Hubert Noel Charles, who was the, uh, the power base which made MG win races in the early 30s. Well, on the next episode of the MG Car Club podcast, we'll continue our conversation with Michael Allison as he continues to tell us what John Thornley was like to work for as a boss at MG and also, he shares his tips on how to buy, maintain and live with a Triple M MG in today's world. It's all coming up on episode 27 of the MG Car Club podcast. The MG Car Club podcast. Safety Fast, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Get your copy now by joining us at mgcc.co.uk. Well, a quickie look at the MG Car Club shop and some new merchandise. Actually, lots of new stuff because, of course, we are heading towards the autumn and ultimately the Christmas gift buying period. And uh, ideal Christmas gifts actually coming through already because these are chocolates. Not only just normal chocolates, but a chocolate toolkit. There's a spanner in there, a fantastic looking wrench, and uh, some shortbread biscuits. All the stuff you need for a chocolate toolkit, basically. The best way I can explain it really is they are little pieces of chocolate sculpture 
They look amazing. And you've got to go and have a look at the pictures on the MG Car Club shop when they come into stock. This is kind of advanced warning at the moment. Um, but uh, when they do come into stock, have a look. They should be on there by the time you hear this. And they are little artistic chocolates that actually look amazingly like rusty metal, don't they, Adam? Yeah, when they're in the packaging, they do look remarkably like an old rusty spanner that you might have sort of kicking around the workshop. Um, and they're not expensive either. You know, they're they're under a fiver. So a nice little stocking filler, nice little Christmas gift. Yeah, well worth it. Mm, really nice. And uh, the gifts keep coming because also we've got some new woolly caps in, uh, in blue and green with a free MG lapel pin that you can put on. You basically put your little pin on your woolly hat there and look great. And they'll keep your head warm when driving in the autumn and winter with the roof down on your MG. Ideal gifts as well. They're on the MG Car Club shop. Just search for Woolen Cap and you'll find them there very quickly at £13.50 each. Uh, Beanie Hats as well with the MG logo on there. And also, as winter approaches... Looking after our cars is crucial and ensuring that they're protected from the weather and the elements is really, really important. And this is important whether they're put in a garage or whether indeed they're outside or maybe in a carport. It's really important to make sure that your car's covered up. And as the MG Car Club, it's our responsibility, I feel, to make sure that you've got proper car covers, the availability of car covers that have tested and proven and are top quality. Now, these, Adam, are not the cheapest car covers out there, but they are the best in that they are specifically designed to look after classic cars either indoors and we have a Supertex car cover for the indoor cars, the cars kept in garages to keep the dust and uh, the moisture off the car if it's in a garage, and also outdoor car covers. These are the ones listed as Moltex Hamilton covers on the MG Car Club shop. And the best way of describing these really is kind of like a, a Gore-Tex coat for your MG. And if you are in the position where your MG spends a lot of time outdoors, even if it's a daily driver, it's important to keep a cover on them because it keeps the worst of the weather off when they are sat there overnight or, or over the weekend or if you're not using them for small periods of time. It just keeps the worst of it off, really. And they, they, they're, they're particularly designed to be breathable so that any moisture that inevitably does get under that cover, and it can't be helped with changes in temperature during the winter, can escape. The problem is if you put like a tarpaulin over the top of your car, it keeps the moisture in and that's when you get these horrible lacquer bubbles in the paint. You get mould growing in the interior, especially on headlinings. It's impossible to get off if you get a mouldy headlining on your car. Um, on convertible cars, you actually get a lot of mould on the back of the seat belts, you know, where they sit in behind the rear wings and stuff. So um, we've scoured the market basically at the mg car club come up with really good quality car covers and you can find them now on the mg car club shop just search for car cover and there's an indoor version and outdoor version and the best thing about these car covers is that they're customizable you can actually have the mg car club logo put on them or indeed any of the mg model names or perhaps even a logo of your choosing as well so you can find them all on the club shop we have gone to great pains haven't we adam to make sure that the best quality ones are on there to look after the cars you want to know that when you uncover it 
the following spring that you're not going to be faced with, you know, a mouldy convertible roof or, or, God forbid, you know, big sheets of lacquer flaking off the car because the the like you say the moisture's been kept underneath. So, yeah, these are really good quality. I'm certainly going to be investing in one uh, for the winter because I've got uh, a car that I can't get in the garage because uh, my bee's in the garage. So yeah, it's it's a no brainer. Again, with the personalisation options, you know, moving towards Christmas. These are a really nice Christmas gift as well. You know, it's not like the chocolate was a stocking fella. This is a is a is a nice main gift for someone. Um, get it personalised, and it really shows that you've sort of put that thought into the the gift for for Christmas. And also, of course, in the 90th anniversary year, the MG Car Club anniversary badges are still available. Not many of them left now. Uh, we've got more of the small grill badges left, I think, haven't we, Adam? These are for the later cars. Yes, so we are literally down to the last few large grill badges in stock. So if you want one, remember they are all numbered. They come with a with a really nice certificate that's signed by John Day, the, the car club president. Um, it really is sort of last orders at the bar if you want one. So uh, get your order in there before it's too late. Well, that just about rounds up another episode of the MG Car Club podcast. From me, Wayne Scott, see you soon. And from me, Adam Sloman, take care. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk.